Welcome to RVR's Life After Camp podcast. Learn about the camp and retreat ministries of RVR at rivervalleyranch.com. Enjoy. Listen to what Paul says here. This is in, this is in the first chapter of the book we've been reading from almost every single night this week. Listen to this. This is in Ephesians 1 verse 3. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, Paul's about to do some cool stuff here. He's about to pile on some metaphors, and he does this all throughout his letters. He's trying to help people understand just how incredible it is what Jesus has done for them. And so, I mean, he will like pile on the metaphors. He'll use legal metaphors and relational metaphors. And he'll use like this idea of like being freed from prison or being redeemed from slavery or being reconciled in terms of relationship. And and I, I just love this. Okay, listen to what he says here. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. I want you just to turn to that person next to you and say, he chose you. Now, the other person feels left out, so turn to them too. He chose you. Listen, if Paul is telling the truth here, he's saying that God had a plan that involved you before the creation of the world, that you were chosen. This is amazing. Listen, he goes on, okay? In love. Say in love. Oh, uh, are there two more important words than that? In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but according to this, Not only did he choose you, he was happy about it. It was to his pleasure. He finds delight in the fact that you have been chosen to know him and be known by him and be a part of this great kingdom tapestry. This is something that, like, I don't know if you think this, but at times I've thought this, that, like, if God was to look at my life, maybe his default emotion would be something more like disappointment than delight. But that's not what Paul says. Like, think about the God who would sing over you and laugh over you and delight in you. His love would go to you like a father to a daughter or or like a mother to a child. I mean, just this beautiful picture of overflowing love and pleasure and delight. In him, meaning in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now, this is poetic, and it's cosmic, and it's beautiful, and I don't even expect you to understand all this. Here's the point. God's got a great big plan, a plan that looks to us like a mystery, but to him is full of intentionality. A plan to us that looks like transcendent cosmic mystery, but yet to him, he knows exactly what he's doing and when he's doing it. And we're all a part of the weaving of this kingdom tapestry. And I want to go back to this idea tonight of these metaphors. I mean, Paul loves to chain these things together. He really does. He loves this. 
He uses metaphors in, in, in this letter alone, like those who have been outsiders have been invited in. He just piles these things on. Those who were foreigners have been made citizens. Those who were orphans have been adopted. In other places, Paul uses metaphors of being redeemed from slavery or released from prison or having our debts canceled. And he's begging us. He's, he's pleading with us in like every way he can communicate possibly to get this into your soul. God wants a relationship with you and is prepared to do whatever it takes to make that a reality. He wants a relationship with you. And this is why Jesus came, to, to bridge this chasm, to, to, to eliminate the barriers, to tear down those things that separate you and God, to make sure you have access, despite your imperfection, your sin, your failure, the things that hold you back, Jesus wants to open a door. And this is, this, I mean, this is repeated all through the New Testament in so much poetic language. Here's what I'm going to do tonight. I think that I have a chance to talk to your head. But very much of Scripture isn't addressed to your head or to your logic. It's addressed to your heart. And I think that stories and songs are the language of the heart. And I can't sing, so I'm going to do something different. I'm going to tell you a story. Now, I think this is a tragic story. I think it's a sad story. I think it might be one of the saddest stories that I know. But in some ways, it's also a very beautiful story. And here's what I want to challenge you to do, okay? I think this story, even though the name of Jesus isn't mentioned in this story, I think this story is sort of a, a type of the whole gospel. I think we're, we're, it's begging us to see that this is about Jesus through and through, that this is a story. It's not just a sad story and also a triumphant story about this incredible word. In the Old Testament, the word is chesed. Say that. You got to spit to say it right. Chesed. That's it. It's chesed, okay? Chesed. This is a Hebrew word, and it's the word it's a hard word to translate, okay? So I think we would use the word grace. It will be the best word. But really, the word is like covenant fidelity. It's faithfulness. It's kindness. Your Bible, if you, if you have an older Bible, it will use the word loving kindness, which what does that even mean? I don't know. But if you have a modern Bible, it will use the word favor or, or faithfulness maybe. But chesed is this idea that that I make a promise to you, and no matter what, I'm good on that promise. It's covenant loyalty. I will be faithful to it, even if you're not faithful to it. It's this idea that I am yours, and you are mine, and I've got your back, and you've got my back. And at, at certain points in time, when this thing was, this covenant was forged, the two warriors would forge a covenant of chesed, and I would actually draw my sword and exchange my sword with your sword. And you would give me your sword, and I would give you my sword. And what that means is that, hey, from now on, you don't have a fight that I don't also have. I don't have a fight you don't also have. If he's picking on you, I'll fight him. Okay? I'll, I'll, we'll just, you and I are in this. You see what I'm saying? We're, we have a, now, but when I need your help, you're going to come to me with help, right? So I need your aid. Now, we're in a covenant, and this matters, guys. This matters so much. So I'm going to tell you a story. You guys ready for a story? There's no points for taking notes tonight. If I lose you, I lose you. But I, I beg you, lean in. I beg you to lean in. This is how Jesus communicated the most important truths. And so we're going to shift gears and I'm going to tell you a story. So I've got to loosen up. All right, this story is, it, it begins with a dual tragedy. The first tragedy is the fact that I told you I have a stuttering problem because I was abused by my third grade teacher and I have certain words I can't say. And the first tragedy is that this guy's name is one of those words I have a really hard time saying. His name is Mephibosheth. Can you say that with me? Mephibosheth. And the name literally means 
this name is tragic. <laughs> okay, it's like the worst name you could ever want. Okay, the, the name means like a word of shame. <laughs> like it, it would be like if I named my son Tragedy. <laughs> I didn't. I named my son Dietrich Valor. My, my, my son's middle name is actually Valor. Believe that? Because he's, he's brave, man. My, Dietrich Valor Ulrich. But I didn't name my son Tragedy, but this guy's name is actually Tragic, and so is his story. This guy, Mephibosheth, he was born a princeling in Israel. His fa uh, father was named Jonathan, and he was one of the greatest men that ever lived. He was one of the greatest characters that you'll ever see on the pages of Scripture. This guy was an inspiring leader. He was a faithful friend. He, in some ways, is almost like a Christ figure in, in the story. He's just uh, this remarkable person that people were inspired to be around, and yet it wasn't all well for the princeling Mephibosheth because there was a history of violence and abuse in his family. His grandfather was a man named Saul, and he was Israel's first king. And Saul was a, a tall and impressive man. You would look at him on the outside, and you would say, wow, what a commanding presence. And yet Saul had some things that were not quite right in his heart. And from the overflow of his heart, the, the, the illness, the sickness, the derangement in his heart led his life in an unhealthy direction. And as Mephibosheth was growing up, it wasn't all good in the hood. It wasn't all nice in the palace. It was good. He had a very privileged existence. But what was happening during the time of his first five years was that there was another man in the kingdom, and his name was David. And David was exceptionally talented. As a young man, David defeated a 10-foot-tall giant in single combat. His name was the Philistine champion Goliath. And David had songs written about him and legends. And there were rumors in the kingdom. There were just whispers and insinuations in the kingdom that the prophet Samuel, who's kind of like a Gandalf figure, had anointed David as the next king. And everybody would have assumed that Jonathan would have inherited the throne from his father Saul. That when Saul's reign was done, Jonathan, this shining example, Jonathan, this hero, Jonathan is the king that, we, that everybody anticipated, and yet there was a whisper, there was a rumor that the throne was going to pass to David, and it made Saul incredibly insecure. People would sing songs about Saul's prowess in the battlefield, his success, but there was one song, and he couldn't quite get it out of his head, and it wasn't We Don't Talk About Bruno, but it was a different song. And this song, it went like something like this. It said that Saul has slain his thousands, and Saul was like, this is my favorite song. And then the next verse was, but David has slain his tens of thousands, and Saul was like, I hate this song. I want to get this song out of my head. Disney, please write another one. But he couldn't shake it, and he began to be paranoid, and this singular fixation be became of his life. He was obsessed, and what fills your heart will lead your life. And so his heart was filled with envy and with darkness. His heart was filled with, the way that the, the narrative describes it was he was clutching, he was grasping, he was trying to hold on to his kingdom, but he had disobeyed the Lord and the Lord had snatched it away. And in the moment where the prophet Samuel came to Saul and said that your kingdom is going to be taken from you, Saul said, no, it won't. And he grabbed a hold of Samuel's cloak. And when Samuel pulled away, he tore the hem of the garment off of the old prophet. And he was left holding just a shred. And Samuel turned around and put his finger in Saul's face and he said that just like that, God's going to take your kingdom and give it to another. And that, it, it made Saul go kind of crazy. 
And under the shadow of this, David on the rise and Saul on the decline, this is the environment that Mephibosheth grew up in. And because Jonathan had a friendship, he actually had respect and affinity for David, even Jonathan, even this man who was gentle and kind, this man who was good, full of integrity, this man that, that this little boy couldn't wait to see, Jonathan became a victim of Saul, his father's abuse. And Mephibosheth saw this growing up. Abuse and violence. And it began to work on his heart. He began to doubt the very things, the realities of, of trust and faithfulness and what he could become. And then the tragic day came when word spread through the land that in one decisive battle, Saul had been killed alongside of Jonathan and the entire kingdom wept because now we're talking about a moment of crisis because what's going to happen? Is there Camp David and is there Camp Saul? And I'm not sure what's going to happen. And some people overzealous actually thought, I'm going to make my move right now. And so they went after Jonathan's younger brother. His name was Ishbosheth. I don't know why they named kids these terrible names in this family. I don't even know. Ishbosheth, I don't know, make it up, means he who forgot the toilet paper. Not, that's not it, but um, that isn't biblical. But Ishbosheth, some people thought, I'm going to get in with David's good graces. And so they went and they murdered Ishbosheth and they brought, they brought his head to David. And this is the moment where there was a nurse. And she was in charge of the baby in the royal palace, this five-year-old little boy named Mephibosheth. And so she said, we have to go, we have to flee, we have to hide because the allies of David, even though David didn't want that, but that doesn't matter, they're going to find this child and they're going to kill him. So we have to go, we have to rush right now. And they rushed him to safety. And as she fled out of the door, she tripped and fell. And she fell with her body right on top of this little boy. And his legs were crushed. And there was no time to see a doctor because his life depended on it. So they had to go immediately into hiding. And into exile went the young prince, Mephibosheth. When he was five years old, his legs were crushed and never healed right. He could never walk. He became lame. He had to be carried around on a mat. Maybe he could eventually hobble with crutches. And the place where he landed was the house of this other man. And he lived in, in, in a region called Low. Uh, Debar, and low Debar roughly translates to the worst. It means no pasture. It's like Gary, Indiana. It's just the worst place you could imagine. Anybody from Gary? Never visit Gary, Indiana. If your mom is like, hey, we're going to Gary on vacation, hide. Don't get in the car. It's a terrible place. They call it the armpit of America. I don't know why. He spent his childhood in exile in this place called Lo Debar. It's a barren place. It's desolate and bleak. And I want you to think about how he grew up. He was five years old when he settled there. and his entire childhood, he grew up. Think about this for a second. When he grew up, every time he heard horses' hooves on the road, he had to hide. Every time he saw a soldier in uniform, he assumed that the king had sent assassins after him and found him. He was told his entire life the king was hunting for him because wouldn't it be just the thing to do to eliminate any rival to your dynasty and your future claim to the throne? When David, he heard, was crowned king over all Israel, the nation rejoiced, but in Lodabar, their heads hung low. And Mephibosheth, that night he wept. 
He thought for sure now that David was there. And there were whispers. There were whispers all through his upbringing that, that someday the king was going to find him. And, and he had to hide. He had, every time there was a knock on the door, it was quick, hide Mephibosheth. Remember, he is crippled and he cannot flee. David's men, they were legendary killers. They actually are known as the mighty men of David. These guys had no equal on the battlefield. Matter of fact, that group of David's elite guard never lost a battle, not one time. They never lost, even if they were outnumbered. They were legends. David himself trained them in a cave in a place called Adullam. And David, you already know, was a match for a 10-foot-tall giant. I mean, there was not an equal to David on the battlefield. This boy was a prodigy when it came to the ways of war. And so there was no thought of resistance. There was no time to hide. It was just constant fear, constant shame. And he began to believe because he, he grew up in the shadow of, of all these insinuations and in the, the, the steady presence of shame, he began to internalize this. Not only did he think that the king was seeking him, but he began to think of himself as worthless. What would that do to you? How would that shape you? And if you ever needed a reminder of your own deficiency, just look down and look at your broken form. You grew up in a place of no pasture and no rest, broken and ashamed, alone in the wilderness. And then the day came. There was a knock on the door. The door flung open and in the silhouette, there's a man, his name was Joab. You could write an entire novel about the exploits of this guy, Joab. Joab was sort of David's man that got the dirty work done. Joab was David's right hand, and it was a furious right hand. Joab had a body count that was unrivaled in this point in history. Joab is skilled in the art of violence. Joab is a, is a stone-cold killer. And they knew. And their blood turned to ice in their veins. There was no time to hide the boy. There was no time to fight. There wasn't even a thought about resisting. And Mephibosheth knew it's time to make my peace with God because the king has finally found me. Outside, there was a band of David's mighty men waiting. I mean, in full armor, ready for war. This war band was present. There was no hope of survival. And so Mephibosheth thought, let me just save the people of this household that gave me shelter, even, even in this wilderness state, this house of shame, this house of darkness, this place of no rest and no refuge where I never felt at home. Let me save them. I'll go with you willingly before the king. It was a day and a half to travel where David had made his the capital of his kingdom, he had captured a stronghold city built on a hill called Jerusalem. It had never been the capital before, but Jerusalem was such a, a, a great city to defend. It was built into the side of a mountain, and it had all these rings of, of reinforcements. It looked like the, 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 the city of Gondor from Middle Earth. You know what I'm talking about? Thank you, boys. Anyway, so it was, it was an easy place to defend, and it was a great city for David to name his capital. And you know who captured that city for him? His man, Joab. He said, I'll give a reward to the first person who breaches the gates. And Joab crawled through a sewer pipe, through an ancient aqueduct up into the heart of the city and opened the gates for David's men and let them in. They took the city. This guy is legendary. As they begin to ascend the hill, they pass Bethlehem, which is the birthplace of King David. 
It's a city of bread on the foothills outside of Jerusalem. And they go up and they, they begin to make their way where the palace is under construction. David was constructing himself a palace and he had, he had begun to pile up uh, materials to build the temple of God. And all this is happening as Mephibosheth is being literally carried in a mat through the city. People are coming out and they're thinking this is some sort of triumph where a king parades his vanquished foe before the city in, in shame. And maybe people were hurling insults at the, at the young princeling. The one bright spot in Mephibosheth's life up to this point was somehow in his misery in Lodabar, he met a young woman. They were married and he had a son. This little son, he had one little boy. And he could, he's just thinking, if I can only live for the sake of my son, I know that what would my grandfather would have done if he had the chance. My grandfather hunted David for a decade, driving him like a fugitive from, from lonely place to lonely place, trying to end his life. He saw him as a rival. And so he assumed, what more could David do than want me dead? Wipe out my family, kill my little boy. They get to the door of the court of King David and Mephibosheth makes his way, this time on crutches. He hobbles in slowly. Each step is torture. He knows this is it. And yet he wants to live and so he throws himself about 10 feet away from the throne of the king upon the floor. And he begins to plead for his life. David says nothing for what felt like an eternity. Jonathan feels the cold stone beneath his body. Or Mephibosheth, I said Jonathan, he's dead already. Sorry, guys. Mephibosheth feels the cold stone beneath his body, and he wonders what's going to happen. He hears a voice. It's the voice of the king. Mephibosheth, are you the son of Jonathan? the grandson of Saul. And Mephibosheth almost doesn't want to answer because he knows now that we've mentioned Grandpa Saul, he was not a good man. David has every reason in the world to take revenge for the torture, for the abuse, for the toxicity that his, his grandfather had perpetuated. He had heaped abuse onto David as a young man. And now here's his chance for revenge to even the scales. And he knows, now that Saul's in the equation, I have no hope of life. But he says, into the cold stone of the floor, yes, I'm Mephibosheth. He hears footsteps approaching. And he closes his eyes, expecting any minute the death blow. David, from that time when he defeated Goliath, David wore on his hip the sword that he captured from that giant. It was a legendary weapon. It was, there was none like it in the kingdom. Songs had been written about it. And he's expecting any minute for the sword of Goliath to find its home in between the third and fourth vertebrae of his neck for an instantaneous kill blow. He knows it's coming. He winces, he cries, he pleads for mercy, and he hears something strange. First it's tears, then it's sobs, then it's laughter. He's not sure what to do, so he tries, he just picks himself up just a little bit off the floor. 
and David's kneeling next to him. And the first words out of David's mouth are the most shocking words. He never thought he'd hear them. And the words are this, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I've been hunting you. I've been pursuing you. I've been looking for you for one reason. And Jonathan had a, Mephibosheth, sorry. Mephibosheth had assumed that the one reason was his demise, it was his death. That if David the king was hunting for me, it only could mean the worst thing. And David said, no, 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 no. I've been looking for you because of chesed. Because of covenant. Because of grace. I've been searching for you to show you mercy. And Mephibosheth can't even believe what he's hearing. These are his words. And you can read about these in 2 Samuel chapter 9. He said, who am I, Lord King, that you would even give attention to a dead dog like me? And David says, no, you don't understand. I made a promise to your daddy that I intend to keep. Your dad was my best friend, my best friend in the whole world. We had a covenant one with another. It was a covenant of chesed. It was a covenant of grace, of covenant fidelity. I pledged my sword to watch his back, and he gave aid to me in a moment of my greatest need. He put his life on the line to save me, and now it's my turn to repay the favor. And I, I'm going to tell you, Mephibosheth, you've been hiding from me. You've been running from me. So I've been searching for you. I've been reaching for you, but not to harm you, but to help you, not to hurt you, but to restore you. You are going to be a legal son of my house with all the rights and privileges therein. I declare before the whole kingdom right now that Mephibosheth is my adopted son. He will always eat at the king's table. I will furthermore award to him all the lands and wealth that previously belonged to Jonathan, his father, and Saul, his grandfather, and I will appoint men to work this land to make you a wealthy and powerful person. But you, you will stay here with me. You'll eat at my table, and you'll be like my son. Whew. Okay, this is a slow clap. Okay. You guys get this here? Oh my God, this is so beautiful. This is the true story of David and Mephibosheth. And it's your story. And it's my story. Okay? Just like Mephibosheth, we were wounded, we were broken by a fall. And, and before we realized, before we, we, we surrendered to the grace of our king, we lived in hiding and avoided him. We assumed the worst. What you believe about God will determine so much of the way you approach him. And some of you came here this week assuming that if, if there's a God and he's the God of the Bible, that it must mean he's the God of judgment or of, of, of condemnation or of separation or of, of whatever. And you have, you have it totally wrong. This is the God that wants to know you. This is the God that wants relationship with you. So much so, now here's the beautiful part. Like Mephibosheth got to benefit from not his own merit. He didn't deserve any of the grace, any of the favor, any of the wealth, any of the position. He got to benefit from the deeds of another. 
It was his father, Jonathan, that made the covenant with, with, with David before he was the king. And on the basis of that covenant, faithfulness, beauty, grace get extended to Mephibosheth. And this is what Jesus has done for us. The Christian story is that each of us lays before the king in total surrender, deserving nothing of his grace, love, or favor, but the merit of another. Jesus Christ has given us restoration and a seat at the table of the king. Sons and daughters, you have a place at the table of the king of heaven. This is so unspeakable. If you can get your head around this, guys, I'm telling you, if you can get this into your heart, all this time, Mephibosheth had been hiding in fear and dread when David was searching for him, not to kill him and wipe his name off the earth, but to lavish him with kindness, to restore him to royal status. Where everyone thought David would eliminate Mephibosheth as a rival, David instead welcomes him into the royal household. This is how covenant loyalty works. It flows from God to us through the person of Jesus. And then we get the opportunity as children of the king to pay that forward in unexpected demonstrations of love. You're invited. So find your seat at the table. Dear one, you don't need to live another minute in exile. You don't need to live another day in fear you don't need to live any more time at all with their distance between you and God because God wants to know you. And in the person of Jesus, you can know God. This is yours. It's yours because Christ bought you a seat at that table. So pull up. Fall into the arms of grace. The king seeks you out to welcome you home. And all this is true because of Jesus. His loyalty to us is more important than our unfaithfulness to him. You're invited. Find your seat at the table. And here's the beautiful part. Everyone's invited. So extend the invitation. Let's pray. Lord, I really wish you named this guy like Ben. This is a lot easier for me to say than Mephibosheth. But I appreciate the grace, Lord God, to say that name. It's hard for me to say it, but I did it. I don't know where people are right now. I don't know who feels like they live in low Debar, who feels like they live in exile. But to those people who are running from you, I pray that their feet would get tired and they would stop. <laughs> not out of exhaustion, but out of just the possibility that maybe the footsteps of pursuit behind them is the pursuit of a God that loves them and doesn't want to harm them. That we don't need to run from you, Lord. We need to run toward you. <laughs> and maybe what we find when we get there is unexpected grace, undeserved favor, love unlooked for that that transforms us and perfects us, that allows us, despite our brokenness, to resume our status as princes, princesses, sons and daughters in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Live After Camp episode. 
Discover all of the year-round adventures at RVR and find out how you can support our ministry at rivervalleyranch.com. Thanks.